0: Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week on the nonprofit news feed for, gosh, June 6th. June 6th, the week of June 6th, we we're talking about some of the information coming out of the independent sector on a survey and nonprofit trust, as well as some other headlines related to themes that we've been covering. Nick, how's it going? It's going good, George. How are you? Doing all right. Just had, I had a wedding last weekend of an in-law. It was fun. Hadn't been to a wedding for a while. So good time to celebrate. Hopefully nobody got COVID. That's good. Tis the so- tis the season for weddings <laughs> your yeah, um, weddings
1: weddings and funerals they go on no matter what i'll say that <laughs> that is true but bring us back to the nonprofit news we'll start off with our first story which comes from Independent sector independent sector has released its third annual survey on trust within the nonprofit and civil society sector and the findings show that while nonprofits still benefit from strong public trust where 56% of respondents say they still trust nonprofits. This is actually a decrease of 3% in overall trust in nonprofits compared to 2020. There are a couple other really interesting findings within the report. One is that nonprofits were the strongest institution when it comes to public trust, beating out legacy institutions like government, the media, substantially. That being said, there's a couple of interesting nuances in the data. And the survey found that education and financial well being drove nonprofit trust. In fact, education level was the prime determinant more than any other demographic determinant of trust in nonprofit organizations. They also found that Gen Z is increasingly skeptical of the nonprofit sector, not having a negative perceptive. Uh, perspective per se, but not having a positive one either. So the jury is still out on them when it comes to building that trust in nonprofits as a social institution. But George, what were your
0: takeaways from these really interesting and important survey results? Yeah, just to start, I always try to find and understand the sample size. In this case, it is a U.S. general population of 3,000 with a margin of error of uh, plus or minus 2%. So any number you hear, it's like Give or take a couple points. So that's just important to put in mind. I think the difference is uh, based on age range and rising generation being a touch more skeptical is in line. Uh, Overall positive in terms of this report that I look for is just, look, we're talking about people's trust across businesses, government, media, and nonprofits. These four major pillars of information. In our society, and nonprofits continue to be at the top of it. Albeit overall trust erosion just seemingly undercutting everybody. However, nonprofits just play this incredible role with regard to uh, communicating valuable information in a time of mistrust. And so I, you know, I always uh, like seeing that in terms of nonprofits being up there. But the overall number, I believe, slipped three percent for nonprofits, right? It did, yeah. The
1: overall number decreased 3%, however, it was still high at 56%. And the only other social institution that was rated that high in the survey were small businesses and just local communities and community members. So in terms of our social institutions, nonprofits are still the highest, but yes, did slip 3%.
0: I'd say the other piece that I pulled out here is the biggest differentiating demographic characteristic is college, non-college. So more highly educated individuals in this particular survey uh, were uh, at a higher likelihood to be trusting the social impact sector, nonprofits and, and philanthropy. That's an interesting one to me.
1: And I think it goes back. I think it's interesting because a lot of nonprofits particularly those that focus on social welfare uh, might be helping folks in poverty or who may not have had the ready opportunity to go to higher education. So maybe an interesting dichotomy between the the folks who might be funding, contributing, running and building nonprofits versus beneficiaries, uh, potential beneficiaries of those services. And of course, that's a broad oversimplification. but. To me, that was, that was somewhat interesting. George, what do you make of Gen Z being more skeptical of nonprofits as an institution? The, the actual data showed that they were more trusting of uh, crowdfunding uh, type campaigns and a little bit more enthusiastic about, uh,
0: about donating, for example, to those campaigns. Part of me is not surprised ultimately rising generations tend to have higher levels of skepticism of institutions that pre-existed that are run disproportionately sometimes by the other generation and just it's like a a natural curve of what goes on the rise in in crowdfunding and crowdfunding philanthropy is it's a personal frustration of mine because i don't believe it is the most intelligent way to distribute funds for a public good i think it's the most popular I think it's the most social. I think it is, you know, near term gratifying, long term, even potentially destabilizing to say, here's how philanthropy should be done. We're as a mass of crowds smarter than an individual who studies a topic. There are times when the crowd is far smarter. But there are other times when, you know, maybe an organization that has got ten employees doesn't need forty five million dollars in the span of four days. Maybe that's a thing that you have to sort of balance and you know, it's a pendulum, it's a pendulum of uh philanthropy that'll, uh, obviously, uh, come and go. And maybe the rising generation, you know, like coming up will be like, wait a minute, we've seen this show too many times. And the only person who wins in crowdfunding consistently is the crowdfunding platform. Okay. That's fair. I guess in turn,
1: Gen Z's are, are skeptical. You are, and we are skeptical of Gen Z. Uh, oversimplification again but
0: yeah I mean you also saw this in a macro uh, around crypto and obviously I've not (laughs) shied away from being a fan of crypto philanthropy however it does also make that crowdfunding a lot easier I cannot go understated the fact that millions and millions of dollars were sent to Ukraine without the permission of you know the guiding powers that be to do so and that's it feels very gratifying in the moment And you know, who, who's to say how, you know, 80 plus million is, is being, being used and it was something that when you take away the, the middle people institutions and controlling bodies in place, like you just get money to where you think it needs to go and it will have different types of second order effects, both positive and negative.
1: Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, that's fair. I agree. All right, we'll move on to our next story. And this comes from The Hill and is a little bit more sobering. And The Hill reports that data from the Gun Violence Archive, which is a nonprofit, has reported 233 mass shootings that have taken place so far this year in the United States. And this data uh, comes amid the fallout of several devastating shootings in New York, Texas. Oklahoma and just what seems like a increasing temperature in the country when it comes to gun violence. But what struck me about this wasn't so much the gun violence as, as terrible as it is, not something I'm surprised about, sadly, but that the most definitive source on this is actually coming from a nonprofit. And the gun violence archive is the go-to source for news organizations and researchers uh, trying to assess gun violence and mass shootings in particular in the United States. So really interesting that a nonprofit is stepping up here and filling that void uh, to provide the public with, with really vital information that for a long time, even the government, for example, was barred from studying, you know, government agencies were barred from studying the health effects of gun violence. So there's very, Oh, yeah, this is famously that rule was lifted only within the past couple of years. But the CDC, I think it's the CDC, wanted to do uh, research on gun violence and Congress specifically forbade it in the allocation of funds. So there's kind of a dearth of national data on gun violence and mass shootings and the, the data is all over the place. But it seems that this nonprofit is really kind of the authoritative uh, source of truth on this.
0: Yeah. I think getting back to definitely check this out gunviolencearchive.org. I'm embarrassed. I've never seen this nonprofit, but it's a great model for showing how you can use data, information, and honesty to hold up the mirror to society and say, this is what the numbers tell us about what's going on. This isn't, I mean, as much as you can say, it's like, it's not an agenda here. It's just, here are your numbers. You're not doing well by any measure of what's going on here. And the question is, is this, is, you know, what is, what is tolerant? You know, is 2021, 692 mass shootings, is that tolerant of a society? I mean, it was tolerant then, it was tolerant in 2020 with 610 mass shootings. It was tolerant by our society in 2019 with 417 mass shootings. At what point, I wonder, does the amount of mass shootings per year hit some sort of threshold? And this organization seems to be asking that direct question by holding the numbers up, uh, as well as other total incidents of guns and other pieces. But the mass shootings are are particularly of importance because we made assault rifles legal in this country after having them be illegal throughout the, the 90s and yeah. simply let the clock expire on that permission and now uh, i know they're debating slowly whether or not that might change but i, I think one take a look at gun violence org. two take a look at how your organization responds to your own cause in your backyard not just gun violence but how might data be used in this way to affect change and to hold up that social mirror.
1: Absolutely, George. That's a great analysis. And I have a little bit more information on the law I was talking about. There was a 1966, 1996 rule that passed through Congress, uh, called the Dickey amendment, which barred the CDC and other government research organizations from using funds to quote, to advocate or promote gun control, which was widely seen as essentially prohibiting any study of gun violence or gun sales, what have you, at the federal level, uh, but appears to have been repealed in uh, 2019. But uh, the article goes on to quote that there is a decade gap of uh, data there that needs to be filled in. So like you said, this, this nonprofit is doing tremendous uh, tremendous public service. All right, I'll take us into our next story. And this comes from KSHB 41, Kansas city news. Um, and I'm going to package it with, uh, the next story, um, from CBS 46 news. And these two articles about rising gas prices, affecting delivery operations for nonprofits and similarly inflation impacting nonprofits ability to feed thousands of kids over the summer. So we have two local stories here. One is a nonprofit. uh, You know, the price of gasoline is affecting their ability uh, to to move uh, goods around and and their operations. And uh, this other story talks about inflation, uh, which we've talked about on this podcast, really impacting food banks and other uh, service providing nonprofits. But uh, George, do we see this abating anytime soon? Is this going to be a problem? For the long term, do we think, how how should we think about this at
0: kind of a macroeconomic or even just a macro (laughs) level? So one of the reasons I brought up the articles that I did, I mean, there's so many of these articles about inflation. We talked about it on here, but the shift in the summer is that the school food programs that disproportionately feed a tremendous amount of food insecure young people in this country through public schools. Goes away during the summer. And so there's going to be a different level of food insecurity hitting families uh, across the country this summer while gas continues to rise and food prices continue to clearly hit new inflation highs, the cost of uh, and the cost of food to feed uh, is going, you know, that net that need has to be met and it's disproportionate during the summer. So these lunch programs, uh, are something that I was just looking at. And so if your organization is in and around it, I think messaging the urgency uh, associated with its shift, that that could maybe help with fundraising or improving
1: the narrative. Absolutely. I agree. Those programs serve such a vital importance for our school students. And and to your point, the summer is hard for a lot of families that don't have not only the those food programs, but even then have to consider things like childcare or paying for camp or date, whatever it may be, it puts a lot of, a lot of burden on, on folks. So that's a great thing to the flag. All right. Our next article, George, I know this is one uh, that you're a topic you're passionate about and you're passionate about it because you in fact wrote this article and the title is small nonprofits shouldn't be subjected to the same payroll tax as Amazon and ExxonMobil written by you in the Chronicle of Philanthropy. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you wrote?
0: I'm just going to admit, I know this is just shameless. It's shameless for me to bring my own article into our own newsfeed. However, this has been on my mind for uh, probably a couple of years of how effectively the the same payroll tax, right? When you pay an employee that Sort of percentage of payroll tax that goes to state and federal, which, you know, 10 to 14 percent, give or take, is the same rate that a Facebook exec, sorry, meta exec, or somebody at Exxon, or somebody at any other size organization is paying the same percentage rate. Instead of something like, and and maybe you're like, oh, that makes sense. It's a flat thing. Except if you look at our income tax, it's a progressive tax. The percent that a billionaire has to pay is more. I mean, on paper, at least, than somebody making minimum wage. Yet, at the point of sale, at the point of the moment where the nonprofit or the Fortune 100 company is paying the person, that's the same percentage rate. And so I'm suggesting here a policy wherein nonprofits that are smaller, frankly, uh, that are smaller for effectively, I'm calling about a quarter million uh, charities that are operating with less than hundred employees and less than 5 million in annual revenue, basically for you know uh, a few billion dollars could essentially, we could remove the payroll tax there, giving them an extra 10% uh, operating to either raise wages, to hire people, to serve the communities that they already do. And, and by the way, they are, you know, 501 C3s. so They are doing public good. I, and I put the cap on that in terms of this hypothetical thing is because I don't think a nonprofit with like 10,000 employees is the same type of situation that a smaller under 100 person uh, nonprofit is. And yeah, it's a, it's a, it's part thought experiment, but also part super freaking practical that literally for a cost of 3.7 billion billion, I'd calculated, uh, which could easily be made up with a progressive tax that were not up a touch more for organizations like Amazon, uh, to pay because they can't get around those taxes the same way they can on income tax on, on their, on their corporate taxes. They can't get away from the fact that they need to pay humans to do work. And that's where a percent is taken out. It'd be pretty easy to move up half a point for organizations that are operating over a billion dollars because they're dodging their freaking taxes anyway. Anyway, this is a window into how geeky I get with social impact.
1: We love geekiness on this podcast and George, I'd hesitate to guess that listeners who've made it this far into the podcast are just as geeky. So I think we are in good company, but
0: I wish <laughs> I had, I wish listen, I had a room. I, yeah. uh,
1: we'll look at the data. We'll see how many people make it this far. I wish I had a room to to get you in, someone to talk to, someone in a suit, in a in a nice office in DC, because I think they need to hear this.
0: Oh, well, I'm not going to give up on this idea. I, I don't know where to go next. I did get a quote from the independent sector uh, that, you know, they, they do think it's, you know, potentially plausible. And they, they said there is uh, some type of, you know, precedent for this type of tax. But we'll see. I don't know where to go with it next. But I, I tend not to let things drop. So I'll keep pushing this. And, and if anybody listening just wants to take this and run with it, please go. Go do it. I'll give you the research. Cause I should be doing my real job instead of trying
1: to push something like
0: this. It's for the public good.
1: And speaking of public good, how about a feel good story from our favorite public good sector, please. All right. This story comes from Western dot Not entirely sure, but it is about a nonprofit that's helping helping formerly incarcerated firefighters get jobs. So it's well known that, especially out West, including in California, Oregon, and Washington, states have relied on incarcerated men and women to fight wildfires. And that's a a whole other conversation, but they are often trained to perform, quote here, grueling work while earning just a few dollars, sometimes as little as $2 a day. However, there is a nonprofit group with some foundation backing that's trying to help those firefighters turn their incarcerated job into a real job upon uh, their release. So it's helping folks get the, uh, the certifications they need because they already have the real world training. They've already been doing it. They basically already are firefighters. But helping incarcerated folks uh, turn what they learned during, during prison into a career. And I think that's really tremendous. It helps uh reintegrate firefighters into or formerly incarcerated folks and newly firefighters into our communities. It helps them uh, serve a, a public good and public benefit and the interview one of the individuals who participated. And he was saying that he felt that he had something to give back to society and was really proud to be able to serve in that capacity. So this is a really innovation innovative program, I think. And I'm for any kind of program that helps formerly incarcerated folks reintegrate into society, uh, because it reduces recidivism and it has a whole host of other social benefits, but cool to see.
0: There's a really great quote in here from a person who's uh, incarcerated. Brandon Smith says, when you're incarcerated, you have this stigma of being a public nuisance, being a firefighter provided an opportunity for me to give back to the community give myself a sense of pride. It was something I wanted to continue as a way of giving back to the community once I came home, but they noted that after his sentence was completed in 2014, it really wasn't clear how to essentially become a firefighter, even though he was already trained in that. And so the certifications that he received while incarcerated didn't count. And he, uh, and he couldn't even apply for some positions due to the criminal records, so This is a great nonprofit. And by the way, you know, speaking of somebody who's in California, like, we need firefighters. Very, very much so. Also across the Midwest, because it's going to be a very tough fire season. So hats off to these folks. All right, Nick, thank you. Thanks, George. This has been Using the Whole Whale Podcast.